0: Follow along in our passage of scripture this morning. We have that printed for you in your bulletin insert. Normally we use this as a unison reading, uh, but I think I'll read this passage uh, for us today since it gives us so many different names. Uh, What you need to understand is this is that period in Israel's history When the kingdoms are split, there's a so-called northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, and the southern kingdom, uh, the kingdom of Judah. We're going to be reading about one of the southern kingdom's kings uh, known as Jehoshaphat. That's who we'll be reading about today. He's a good king, just as his father Asa was before him. And with that in mind, we pick up Uh, this passage in verse 5 where he is beginning to pray a prayer on behalf of the kingdom of Judah. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might. So that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham your friend? And they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, If disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine... We will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now behold the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy. Behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehazel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jeel, son of Mattaniah, Levite of the sons of Asaph, in the midst of the assembly. And he said, Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, Thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow, go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jerul. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out against them, and the Lord will be with you At some point in time you may have heard the name George Whitfield as being a very famous preacher or evangelist in the days of the Great Awakening in this nation of ours in the 18th century He was born in England in 1714 and his ministry took him to almost every county in England, often to Wales, 15 times to Scotland, twice to Ireland, and as if that's not enough, he made the dangerous voyage to this nation. I mean, we're talking about ships in the middle of the 18th century, you know made the dangerous voyage not once or twice or three times, but seven times, preaching in this nation all the way from New Hampshire in the north down to Georgia in the south. When he was 27 years of age, he made his first visit to Scotland. And even though he was English, he was very well received because he was Calvinistic in his theology And We sometimes connect him with the Methodist movement and that's correct to do and he was good friends with the Wesley brothers but he was reformed as far as the way that he preached the word and his sermons were received with joy in Scotland. His pace of life would put any of us to shame. He awakened every morning at 4 a.m. to spend an hour in prayer and in the Word, and then that day he would preach for the first time at 5 a.m. Now, he wasn't preaching to empty churches either at 5 in the morning. And you know, sometimes we complain that 9 or 10 or 11 is too early to come to worship and to hear the Word of God proclaimed. And this wasn't just on the Lord's Day, this was every day. He would preach for the first time at five and would typically preach two more times before that day was over. It was on one of these trips to Scotland when he was getting the people of Edinburgh out of their beds at five in the morning that a certain man was walking on his way to hear Whitfield preach that morning and he looked beside of him and there on the street was David Hume the famous Scottish philosopher and skeptic. And this man couldn't believe his eyes that this David Hume was on his way to worship as well. And he looked over at him and said, I thought that you didn't believe in the gospel. And Hume said, I don't believe in it. But he believes in it, talking about Whitfield, He does. Wouldn't it be something if the witness of every life in this place today was that powerful, where those around us knew exactly where we stood with God and what He meant to us in our daily living. This is the kind of witness that Whitfield obviously had in his life. And to some extent, this is the kind of witness we see from this king of Judah in 2 Chronicles 20 this morning. Back in the 17th chapter of this same book, we can read that the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because his heart was courageous in the ways of the Lord. And not just that, but early in his reign, you see, this king had made a foolish decision. Uh, Judah was being threatened and he formed an alliance with someone else instead of going to God about it in the first place. And that's why we know that he's grown in his faith. Because here, later in life, he's been reforming the kingdom of Judah from within, doing away with false gods, appointing people to teach the people of the land the Word of God, appointing judges to rule the land according to the law of the Lord. So the glimpse we see of this king in our passage this morning shows us that he's been growing in his faith. He's been growing in the knowledge and love of God because once again Judah is threatened. And what will he do? Will he make the same mistake he made in the past? Or will he look to the Lord? And that's where we began to read in this passage. We began to read his prayer on behalf of his kingdom. He stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In other words, the people come together and what you and I must notice is what he did not do. He did not sit down and try and figure out a battle plan. He didn't call all the commanders of his army in and say, let's brainstorm about what we can do in the midst of this threat. The very first thing that comes to his mind is to pray. Now that example should speak to us, especially those of us here this morning who are members of this congregation because for the past few months... We've been talking about a process of revitalization in the midst of this church. And we're about two months in to what will be a three-year process depending on what God in His sovereignty and through His Spirit will do in our midst. And as we've discussed revitalization, we've mentioned the four vital disciplines of church growth. And church vitality, those being preemptive prayer, basic Bible, cost commitment, and missional multiplication. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see what the king is doing in this passage. He immediately thinks of prayer, he practices preemptive prayer. In fact, if you go back and read some, about uh, this king's particular rule and in chapters 17, 18, and 19 of this book of 2 Chronicles, you can see how as he tries to lead the people of Judah in religious reform, he puts most of these vital disciplines into practice. We automatically see him resort to prayer here. But we also just read a moment ago how he stood with the people in the house of the Lord before the new court. Did you pick up on that detail? It was a new court. We have to assume he's been investing time and resources on the place of worship. He's trying to get his people focused on the worship of God Almighty. And prayer is a part of that worship. And as he set up judges in the land, he was trying to make sure that that basic Bible, or for him, it would have been basic Old Testament law, was in effect for the people. In other words, that they not only knew the law, but were employing that law in the daily living of their lives. We can even see a little bit of cost commitment here as the king calls for fasting along with this prayer. You see, when we practice cost commitment, we take the focus off of ourselves and what we want, what we desire, and we place the focus right where it should be, back on God and what He requires of us. In fact, within the context of the local church and revitalization, when we put these first three disciplines into practice, preemptive prayer basic Bible, cost commitment, then the fourth one, that of missional multiplication, takes care of itself. That's what we see happening all through the book of Acts. That wonderful book of of history of the early church where we see the apostles and what they were emphasizing day in and day out. And the apostles continued in prayer and in teaching The Word, we see that over and over again. They were in that preemptive prayer mode. They were in that basic Bible teaching and they were committed to the kingdom and the work of the kingdom and the church was exploding with growth day in and day out. The missional multiplication was taking care of itself. But getting back to our text, I want you to notice one really magnificent line in this prayer. It comes near the end in verse 12 where the king says, We are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. I wonder how many times is that true in your life and in mine. We face something all of a sudden, And that's where we are. We don't know what to do. We don't know what to do in the face of this challenge. We don't know what to do in the midst of that particular storm, whether it's financial troubles, whether it's some serious illness, whether it's it's relationship problems within our family. We don't know what to do. Do you see what this prayer is telling you? It's okay to feel that way. You're not the only one who has ever been there if you're clueless at a particular period in your life. In fact, at times even whole nations are like that, such as we see in this passage before us. You see, as I, I read this passage today, I would guess that some of us probably thought, oh, hum, another boring Old Testament passage that really has nothing to say to my life and how wrong we are when we think like that because like Judah, there are enemies all around us today, so many enemies in fact that we don't know what to do. With this being Mother's Day, just think about the enemies against the family. We live in a technological society that tries its best to isolate us from one another so that we never talk anymore. I mean face to face. Now we have Facebook, but I'm sorry, that's not talking. Face to face. We never spend time around the table after a meal if, in fact, we have even eaten together. As a family, we never spend time because we're always running off somewhere else. But not only that, but our nation is so consumer oriented that combined with a typically strong work ethic that's been passed down to most of us through the generations, especially those of us with Scotch Irish ancestors, we feel like we have to stay out there earning. We have to be out there all of the time, and our families suffer in the process. What does it profit if we gain the whole world and lose our children to the evil one? Even Billy Graham, who's arguably done some of the most important work in the life of the church in our modern day and time, says that if I had to do it all over again, do you know what he said? He said, I'd spend more time with my family. That's the wisdom He offers to us. Now I hope that you notice the context of this prayer of the king in our passage. The context is success in battle. How for the nation of Judah to be successful with this particular challenge. I don't know of any parents in this place today, mothers or fathers, who want their children to end up as failures. We all seek success for our children and for our grandchildren, but we need to make sure we understand what true success really is. What is our definition of success? We usually think, at least in this nation, of education as the key to success. Proverbs teaches us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. If you want to talk about education as the key to success, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If we want our children to be successful according to God's word, then we need to practice preemptive prayer. We need to follow the king's example here and keep our eyes focused on God. In fact, these vital disciplines of church vitalization are actually wonderful and needful disciplines in the family life for those of us who are Christians. You see, if we build these disciplines into our own life of each family, that of preemptive prayer, that of basic Bible, that of cost commitment and missional multiplication, then we will have created within the family a community of faith Love and and forgiveness in which we foster the kind of environment in which God reveals Himself over and over again. And you see, that's when we really grow in our spiritual lives. When we've prayed to God about some need and we see Him answer that prayer and we feel like He's so close to us we can just reach out and touch Him. That's what these vital disciplines will do. It will will provide that kind of environment where God reveals Himself over and over, not just in our congregation, but in each family as we put these into practice. You see, what this king is really doing is to humble himself in this passage before God in the midst of this challenge and he trusts in Him fully for the deliverance to come. And we need to understand that's the essence of biblical faith. And without faith, the book of Hebrews tells us that it's impossible to please God. But faith always pleases Him. In fact, on this occasion, God rewards that faith. That heartfelt prayer with a gracious deliverance. Look at the latter part of verse 15. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed for the battle is not yours but God's. And you will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm. Hold your position and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. Those words offer good news in so many different ways and on so many different levels. We love that word salvation. We love it because we know that it speaks of us being saved, being saved from sin and being saved from the effects of sin, the chief effect of which is death. And yet we so often connect that word salvation with grace and we should, we should connect it. That's what Ephesians 2 is all about where Paul tells us, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And yet the Scriptures describe these wonderful gifts like salvation and grace. They describe them so many times more than just saying them. And what I mean by that is if you look at very important passages in Scripture like God giving the covenant to Abraham. Or like God delivering His people, the children of Israel, from the land of Egypt. Or if we turn to the New Testament and look at a wonderful story that Jesus gives us, like the story of the prodigal son. Or if we think about that great love story in the Old Testament in the book of Ruth, where Boaz saves Ruth and her mother-in-law Naomi. All of those passages and more like them, they don't contain the word grace or salvation at all. It's not there in the passage. Yet the concept of grace and the good news of salvation are all over those stories. I mean, they just drip with salvation and grace. Neither Matthew nor Mark use the word grace or salvation at all in their gospels. And yet they weave this wonderful story of the Son of God and this love of God that sends His Son into the world so that you and I might have eternal life with Him and be saved from our sins. Of course, the Apostle Paul, now, he mentions grace over and over a time, over and over again, some over 80 times in Scripture. And the book of Psalms, if you read through Psalms, you see that word salvation over and over and over again. As Barbara Brown Taylor puts it, the grace of God is so pervasive that you can wear yourself out naming it, or you can simply inhale understanding that your life depends upon this unutterable gift. Now, what's my point? Well, the point is when we experience God's gift of salvation that comes to us through His grace, we begin to see that we are not in control. And we begin to see that in His gifts we have more than we can imagine through this one who by his power at work within us is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 3. This is what this king experiences in our passage. It doesn't matter that he doesn't know what to do because the battle isn't his anyway. And that's just as true in your life. This battle for our children is not ours. This battle for church revitalization is not ours. This battle, whatever we have going on in our lives right now, whether it's financial troubles or, or uh, a sickness or illness or problems in a relationship within the family, whatever it happens to be, this battle is not ours. This battle even for our own souls does not belong to us. Once we've prayed, once we have our eyes on God, we need only stand still and see the salvation of the Lord at work for you and for me. Do you know what Peter says about this in his letter? He says the prophets who prophesied of the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired about this salvation. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but they were serving you in the things which have now been announced to you. Therefore set your hope fully upon the grace that is coming to you at the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed set your hope upon that grace and keep your eyes on the Lord for your good and for his honor and glory we didn't read this part of the passage we probably should have you know what happens right after verse 17 where God has come to these people and he said to them given them this wonderful gracious gift you don't even have to fight in this battle. You just stand still and you'll see the salvation of the Lord at work on your behalf. Do you know what happens? They just, they just worship. They stop and worship God right then. Worship is always the proper response of God's people to the good news of His love and His grace, to the good news of His salvation at work on our behalf. And we would do well to follow their example because real worship is something that we do. It's not something we watch. Real worship is something we do. And that's why the psalmist says, Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. May God bless us as we seek to do that for his honor and glory. Amen. Amen. Let us pray together. Dear Father, we thank you for the good news that we find.